just to reframe what we're talking about this morning, 2 Corinthians, the book, is, as we talked about many weeks ago, it is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit serving this, uh, what can only generously be described as a broken and confused, troubled, fairly weak church. And it's the great Apostle Paul doing what with his life, right? The great Apostle Paul uh, laying down his life for what is a kind of a backstabbing bunch of fair-weather friends. Why would the Lord God, the, the infinite, the all-knowing, the all-powerful Lord God do this for this group of people? Why would the Apostle Paul, who feels himself so painfully commissioned by Christ to the exact things that he's doing, why would he be here in Corinth? And as we talked about, it's because they have the light of Christ for their location. As Paul opens up 2 Corinthians, he talks about the God of all comfort, who has comforted us in our affliction so we can turn and comfort others in their affliction with the comfort we receive from God. They have the comfort. Without the comfort that the Corinthian church carries, there's no comfort for any of the humans living in Achaia at this time in human history. There is no real comfort. The bottle does not offer the kind of comfort that only Christ can give. The cults, the, the games, the entertainment of the Roman Empire, none of it offered anything but numbing agents. And only in Christ is their comfort. And only in the Corinthian church, this hodgepodge mess of humanity. They are the comfort of Christ. They are the light of the world. But they carry this, as Paul says in Corinthians 4 here, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. The knowledge of the glory of God that will someday cover the face of the earth like the waters cover the sea has come to us now in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. What treasure? The treasure of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ is now here in us in jars of clay. There's a mountain just outside of Rome called uh, Monte Testaccio, which means broken pot mountain. It's about a kilometer around, 150 feet high, and it is entirely composed of broken clay jars. The whole thing is made of broken jars of clay. They were disposed of at the site Monte Testaccio uh, because they're just shipping containers that had to be disposed of. Right? These are not uh, ornamental vases. They're, they're designed to get something valuable, some commodity, something that's uh, worth something here that people need, from point A to point B. And then build a mountain with them. They have something valuable in them that needs to get from one place to another. From Spain, in this case, with olive oil, to Rome. Which I think may be partly why Paul opens up the book of 2 Corinthians talking so much about comfort. 
the God of comfort who comforts us in our afflictions so we can comfort other people. Right? All this comfort because it's difficult being a jar of clay. And sometimes we can get so wrapped up in our being, our being clay, our afflictions, our dis- discouragements and our despairs that we, we forget about the treasure that we carry. We forget about, frankly, how important we are. And not just to God's heart, although you are important to God's heart. I don't want to jump over that. But to God's plan. How important you are to God's plan as well. The, the whole book of 2 Corinthians, when, when looked at from the perspective of what is God doing? What is Paul doing? Our whole church, right? It can, it can look strange. It can look like, what are we doing? Because we forget the importance of the local church in God's plan. Because after all, we think, well, God's nice. He's just, he's nice. He's just going to, he, he, he's big enough and nice enough that he can be nice to these people and kind of like, yes, you guys have a church and you can be, you can have your little church and I'm going to go do stuff with other people too. And we forget about the significance, the strategic significance of the local church and God's design. And so today we're going to look at the strategic significance of the church from a slightly different angle. Uh, we're going to think about how special the church is to somebody else. So look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. We don't want you to be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. You know who else besides God that you're really special to? You know who else this church really matters to? Satan. This morning we're going to look at these designs that Paul refers to, but we're going to restrict ourselves just to 2 Corinthians. Because the Bible teaches more about uh, Satan and, and spiritual warfare. Paul teaches more on this in many very important passages. But we're going to restrict ourselves just to 2 Corinthians and a few passages that Paul references uh, that have to do with Satan in relation to the church. And the first one is right here. So what are, what are Satan's designs on the local church? Let's start right here with uh, verse 6 of chapter 2. Paul, referring to this relational conflict that they had had, says, for such a person, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn, forgive, and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. And then, of course, verse 10 Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I've forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. So the first way that we see Satan at work here is in amplifying a punishing and unforgiving spirit in a congregation. Does that ever happen? Amplifying a punishing and unforgiving spirit in a congregation. In fact, this is one of the this is one of the oldest heritages and marks of the church. In the very early centuries of Roman persecution on the church, there arose this great controversy called the, the Donatist controversy, the Donatist heresies, because as persecution would come to a region, they would give uh, some of the governors and some of the regional leaders were sympathetic to the church, but they had to kind of enforce this official policy. So they would give uh, church leaders kind of an out. They would say, if you just... 
if you just turn over your, a, co- a copy of your scriptures, we'll consider that to be a, a denial of your faith enough to satisfy official requirements, and you can go back to being your church. So some people felt like, well, this is, this is fine. This is better than all of us going to jail and, or being killed. Uh, but others felt like, no, you give anything to the government, you're denying the faith. You're, you're turning over your faith, and you should be put out of the church. Well, after this kind of settled down, there was a group in the church that said, in churches throughout, especially North Africa, that said, no, they are heretics. They, they have denied the faith, and they cannot come back into the Christian fellowship at all. They should not be church leaders. They should not, those churches are, in, uh, are not good churches. And there was this big controversy. And the official church, quote-unquote, said, no, it's, it's okay, there's forgiveness and grace, and, and we, can, we can heal and come back out of this. But this is one of the first things, this unforgiving, punishing spirit. What, is, what does a punishing spirit and an unforgiving sp- spirit feel like in, in you? I mean, you wouldn't say, I need to punish them. And you wouldn't say, I'm not going to forgive them. You would say what? We need to be righteous. We need to be holy. We need to cast out the unclean thing. There's tricky ways of handling this, isn't there? But Paul says this is one of the key ways that Satan has designs on the church. I want to just note something. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. We're going to do a little bit of turning in 2 Corinthians, so it's not going to be that difficult, but I do ask that you kind of tag along. 2 Corinthians 7, 9-10. I just want to show you what this, uh, this experience of amplifying punishment and, and unforgiveness looks like from the other guy's perspective. In, in 2 Corinthians 7, 9-10, Paul says, I, I rejoice not because you were grieved, because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For, and now here's, the, here's a really critical verse. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation. So three components. Godly grief leads to repentance. And that, what is repentance? Repentance is turning us towards Jesus. He said, uh, whereas worldly grief produces death. Worldly grief produces death. And the intervening thing it does, as you can see in the previous verse, uh, grieved, uh, oh, right there in verse 10, leads to salvation without regret. So worldly grief produces regret as opposed to repentance. Repentance is when we turn from our sin to Jesus. Regret is when we turn back into ourselves. We just stew over what we did wrong. And these are the forces that are at work in this guy's life in 2 Corinthians 2 that Paul says are part of the designs of Satan on this congregation. To amplify a sense of regret, have you done or said things in a church, two people, and you feel like, you, I don't want to see them, I don't want to talk to them. I, I, I can't go back into that relationship. I'm just, I, I messed it up. That's, that's not what the Spirit of God is trying to amplify. That's not good or right. As Paul says towards the end, he says, aim in everything you do, aim for restoration. Bring it back together. Br- bring it in here. Bring it back to the team. So here's the, here's the main thing here in this 
first passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, the main thing that we see that Satan wants to do is he wants to disturb the church by amplifying relationship, normal relationship troubles. Right? These things happen. You do things to me. You know, you might show up late for a service when you're really important in it or something, you know, and just cause everybody to sit awkwardly and worry. So we all do things to each other that it would be easy to begrudge. It would be easy to feel really bad about what you've done. It's natural and normal. But Satan wants to, he wants to put the bellows on it so it gets bigger to disturb the local church. And it's not just through relationship problems. There's some uh, exter- external things that Satan wants to, to use as well. Critical components against the church. Look with me at the, towards the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13. We're going to look at just a couple passages here. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13. Such men, he says, are false apostles. He's referring to some of the folks who are working inside in the Corinthian church. False apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Satan, here's what this is saying in simple terms. Satan has people working in and on churches. He has servants. What do they look like? They look like apostles of Christ. They're disguised as servants of righteousness. Now, of course, why does Satan do that, you know? Why does he disguise them that way? Well, he wants to deceive us. He wants to deceive Christians to draw them away from right teaching churches that have less compelling leaders. Right? So, so if you have a I think we're very sympathetic to this in our culture. We have a strong celebrity impulse. And we like to look at handsome people. And we like, we like them to make us feel good and laugh and give us a little sense of positive energy for our week. We like this. And Paul's saying, ooh... Be careful. Satan disguises his servants precisely in those ways. And then just turn the page. For me, it's a page turn. Turn to, just look briefly at chapter 12, verse 7. What does Paul say that, the, that Satan is up to in his life? He says, to to keep me from being conceited because of the greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. So I just want to point out this in in Paul's understanding of the situation. Uh, Satan's got some kind of messenger sent to harass Paul. Meanwhile, his servants, Satan's servants, are being well supported by Satan. Christ's servants are being harassed by Satan. 
And Satan's servants look really polished and smooth. So this is part of what Satan's doing in the church. And now look back with me at chapter 10, verses 3 to 5. Now he's, he's framing this whole section in terms of this kind of warfare mentality, which he brings up here. He says, We walk in the flesh. We're not waging war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Now listen to what that means. He says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. We take every thought captive to obey Christ. So Satan, through these super apostles, these false teachers, he is employing arguments and opinions and logic. So, when these people, disguised as apostles of Christ, as servants of righteousness, get to work on a church, what is their work going to feel like to us? It's going to look like arguments for righteousness. They're going to tell you what you need to do so you can be right. And you can do it right. And they're going to make sense. They're going to make a kind of sense. But he gives us two indications here that we can use. He says they're going to lead us away from a true knowledge of God. Raised against the knowledge of God. And he says, take every thought captive to obey Christ. They're going to lead us away from really getting to know God better and lead us away from being obedient to Jesus. So the idea, I think that the idea that Satan's employing here is he wants us to feel smart and he wants us to feel righteous just so long as we don't actually then pursue knowing God and Christ and we're not actually obeying him. Right? If you can, as long as we're not obeying, he doesn't care how we feel. This is why it's so important to be suspicious of feeling smart. When you feel like you've got it figured out, be very suspicious of that. When you feel like you're doing it right, you, you're, I, I'm, I'm in a righteous position on this opinion. Oh, be careful about that. Be careful. It is so delicious to feel that way, though, isn't it? Like it's so, it feels so wonderful to feel like, I've got it all figured out. What's wrong with people? It's so wonderful to feel like, I will accept you, but you're doing it wrong. Right? It's delicious, but it's deceptive. It's de- we are deceived in that way. And, and, and the world's full of beautiful people who will say to us, You are so smart. You are so godly. Right? And we, yeah, yeah. It's not good. What is it that Satan hopes to accomplish? Well, as he disturbs us, he deceives us, he wants to divide the church. He wants to divide churches along lines of personality. That's, what, that's, that's the whole point of having a, a servants that, that look like apostles, servants that look like, wow, they're so righteous. They're, 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 they're veiled in light to our eyes. He wants to divide churches along lines of personality and along lines of logical arguments and opinions that have been baptized. 
right? When, how long, how many, how many hours, right, has it been since you heard some Christian espouse a view or an opinion with a Bible verse attached to it? That's just complete nonsense. This is just common fare in our world right now. So he wants to divide churches along these lines. And then, of course, he wants to divert churches from faithful living. This is the whole point of not pursuing the knowledge of God, not pursuing obedience to Christ. He wants to keep us from from living faithfully to the glory of God. Now, what is it that Satan's... So this is sort of his strategy, but what is his primary objective? Look look back with me now to one last place, uh, chapter 4, verse 4. What is Satan's primary objective? And here's where we have his primary objective stated. He says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The primary objective of all that Satan's doing in the local church is to keep us blind to the glory of Jesus. That's it. That's the only thing that he really wants to accomplish. That's the objective of all that Satan is at work doing, with all of the power and the utility that he has at his control, is to keep people from seeing Jesus, right? Because God is known, his glory is known in Jesus Christ. And it's only by knowing Jesus that we may be saved, right? That is the treasure, Knowing Jesus is our objective as a church. Making him known is our goal in our lives, in our families, in our communities. And the glory of Jesus shines in a locale through the local church. Or not, which is what Satan's up to. And the primary way that Satan does this work is to disturb, deceive, divide, divert churches, and so dilute our effectiveness. People who should be here this morning, who should be here mentoring us, leading us, aren't. Why? Because this works. It's been working for 2,000 years. It works. We should be more devoted to Christ and to his church, but we're not because we've all been in churches where this has been happening and so we're anxious. We're anxious about being vulnerable to each other. We're anxious about giving ourselves to the church. We're anxious about this whole thing and with good reason because Satan has been doing this in churches for 2,000 years. He knows what he's up to, which is why Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant. Right? Satan appreciates the significance of the local church. If we struggle with it sometimes, we come to church, we think, well, I like to go to a church sometimes and hear from the Bible. It's nice. Satan's like, that's cool. Just so long as you don't understand what's really at stake here. Satan appreciates this. You know, we feel like baked clay sometimes. We feel like we're just, just thrown together on the wheel and shipped out. And, and we feel fragile. We feel silly. We get discouraged. We think, sure, God loves us, but do we matter? Do we matter? And this morning, I want you to know you always matter 
You matter to Satan. <laughs> you matter to God too, but the point of this sermon is to highlight the strategic significance of the local church in the mind and design and plans of Satan. He knows that the plan for the earth to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, that plan runs through this tarp. It runs through the church. So let me encourage you, as we conclude, pay attention to the way that Satan is at work. And if, if nothing comes to mind, that just means he's good at his job. Pay attention to the ways that Satan is at work to diminish the effectiveness of this church and to distract people from the glory of Christ. Have you seen this? Have you seen this in 2020? People, Christians being distracted from the glory of Christ? Have you seen churches becoming less effective? Internal debates and disputes and, and, and spin-offs and leavings? And where is their pressure on the church? Right? Where are the relationship things that are being pulled on? Punishing or regret? What, what personalities outside the church are shifting things by their gravity and by their, their apparent glory here? Personalities at work. Now, how has Satan been successful recently? Maybe in churches that you've observed, and then if you bring that same perspective here, maybe in our church as well. Something to keep an eye on. Well, I titled this sermon, Don't Be So Ignorant, which is kind of an offensive phrase, uh, but I kind of wanted to get your attention a little bit with it. Because, right, Satan is, he's really tricky. You're never going to be like a master on Satan, and you don't want to be the sort of person that's just like, like, these chairs, Satan's at work here. Like, you know, Satan's at work here. Like, I just see Satan everywhere. Like, he's a limited being. He's not everywhere doing everything. But we know that whatever he's doing, why he's doing it. So just, there's no version of this. And I don't want us to be fixated on satanic ministrations in the church. But just don't be so ignorant of it. Just don't be so ignorant of it. I mean, it was the last time I thought about the work of Satan in the congregation. It's not regular. And that's why Paul admonishes the Corinthians and us through the Corinthian letter to pay a little closer attention here. One of the key things to uh, think about is this question. Because as we've seen, Satan wants to work so that we don't have a knowledge of God in Christ and we're not being obedient to Christ in loving other people. He wants to withdraw us into self-satisfaction rather than love. He wants us to withdraw into self-righteousness rather than pursuing the knowledge of God. So here's some helpful questions. If you're encountering a debate or an issue or some subject that seems like, ooh, this is really important and I feel really strongly about it, just what does this have to do with Jesus? And if you've got to go through seven different hoops to get to Christ, maybe that's not really about Jesus. What does it have to do with Christ? And what does it have to do with these people? Not some people someday, or some people far away, but the people that God has given me. There have been a number of things that I, I don't preach about and I don't talk about because nobody in my congregation is affected by them. But I know what you are affected by, and hopefully I pound on that enough. 
Because we're the people that God has given us and the people in our lives. So pray for them, love them, obey Christ in relation to them. And don't stop pursuing the knowledge of Jesus. One last, I guess one last place to turn. I apologize. The very end of 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 11 to 14. So Satan is a tough and tricky enemy. And here we are, just a bunch of clay pots, right? So this can be an intimidating situation. But listen to this. 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So let's stick together and let's display the treasure. And if we build up a small mountain with our lives by the end of it, that's okay. Don't be afraid. The Lord is with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we close this time of thinking about what your word teaches us about the designs of Satan on the local church, we remember the much greater design that you have, which will certainly come to pass. That we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord like the waters cover the sea. And what we do and how we fail how we struggle and what we, what we do or fail to do will not affect those outcomes. For they have been purchased by Christ on the one hand and ordained by your almighty, all-powerful will on the other. And so we can, we can struggle, we can do what we do with a full confidence that you will do what you have promised to do. And though Satan works against us to disturb us and divert us and deceive us, and sometimes he'll be effective, in the end, you will be effective. And we rejoice in that. And so we ask that you would help us to be attentive to the way your spirit is working and also to the tricks of Satan. Would you strengthen this church Bind us together, band us together, and use us to display the treasure that you have given us in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.